Hi, everyone. Welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Ewan. And this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. So on today's episode, we have a great guest, Marty Strong, who is a retired Navy SEAL combat veteran, CEO, and serves on two corporate boards. He is a creativity and leadership consultant, motivational speaker, and the author of nine novels and two business leadership books. Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business, released in January 2022, and Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, released in January of 2023. Marty suffered the loss of his oldest son, beat cancer twice, and has been shot at in a few exotic countries. He spent a lifetime meeting challenges head-on, succeeding in three professions, anticipating crisis, and leading through chaos. Marty, welcome to Refine and Grow. Thank you for being here. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Marty, that bio is so fascinating, interesting to me. It makes me want to know more about your journey. So the first question I want to ask is about your two books, Be Nimble and Be Visionary. What was the journey you took? And sort of the lessons that you learned that made you decide, I need to write a book about this. I need to share these lessons and this experience with others. My background's military. So, and I was in sports before I joined the military, coaching and helping people you don't necessarily know well, or people that are your teammates or people that you're leading after 20 plus years in the service is just a natural tendency for me. So, the first book, Being Nimble, was basically born of that concept. I'm a CEO of four different companies, I helped start two other companies, and I found myself in a constant state of being asked to coach, help, mentor, and all this stuff, which I did, you know, pro bono. I wasn't in the business of doing that. And after a couple of years, I realized whether I did it on purpose or whether it was just something that galvanized because of that interaction, that I had kind of a philosophy. I actually had a personal approach to a lot of these different challenges and categories of challenges in business leadership, whether it's a startup or whether you're scaling or whatever the challenge is, whatever the drama is of the moment. And I thought, well, you know, I could probably do pretty well doing this as a second job or do it when I leave my CEO job. And I studied it a little bit. I thought, I need a book. I need to get some credibility out there beyond just my friends and the people in the neighborhood here. I said, all right, so what am I going to write about? And just like I just laid out, I thought, well, I'll just write about coaching, but coaching through those moments, those issues. So being able to focused on fighting talent, training talent, coaching talent, mentoring talent, because anybody that's ever led a business at any size knows that Jack Welch said at a GE, every great CEO is first and foremost an HR professional because it's all about talent. And I talk a lot about that in there. And then organizational design, how do you put that talent together, which is in a sports metaphor, who do you pick into different positions, the fastest, the biggest, the strongest, the one with the most part. And you do make choices and you place your best, so to speak, with that talent. And that's really organizational design. And then a little bit about the responsibilities of leadership, which I think are pretty clear in a military setting because you're taught that from day one. You expect it if you're a follower of your leaders. And if you're a leader, you're held to that standard and you're held accountable to be a leader. But in the commercial world, it's not really taught. It's not taught in college. It's not taught in most companies of any size. And I'm talking about true leadership. Everybody is going to be brought along. The lowest common denominator is going to be trained up. Everybody goes into the fight as prepared as you can possibly make them. And so you as the leader are responsible for that. Maybe it's through a secondary layer of leaders, but that's your responsibility. That was the first book. And 
in that book, I ended up talking about strategy and vision and thinking about the future and not always focusing on the to-do list or the KPIs, et cetera. And one of my beta readers said, that section, which was only like half of a chapter, he said, you can make an entire book on that. He's also a CEO. And he said, they're not teaching that in college. They're not teaching that anywhere either. You know, how do you take an idea, a thought, a dream and compress it into a workable concept and then draw out the operational execution back plan to today? And you realize I've got to start tacking and pivoting in a certain way at a certain angle for a certain number of years or months. And these are the resources required. And now I got to get everybody together in a room and convince them that's what we have to do. And that's what Be Visionary was all about. No, that's fantastic. You know, I'm less in the coaching space and I've been more in the professional services space consulting from the global 50 to really the mid-market. I actually enjoy the mid-market much more than the global 5100 companies that I've worked with. There's a lot of intelligence, curiosity, creativity, and they're just scrappy. And I appreciate the scrappiness. One thing I've seen throughout my professional career, though, in the services space is that you have a lot of smart, capable people, but what you've just outlined from a talent, org design, strategy, and vision perspective is often missing. And I'm just wondering, based upon your experience, what from your military background has helped you really to frame that ability to, we've got to articulate a vision, we've got to outline the strategy, then we have to get the right talent, put them in the right positions to execute effectively and achieve the desired outcomes. What did you pull away from your 20 years in the teams that you've brought forward into your professional career that you found to be most helpful in outlining that model, if you will? Well, for the first book, Be Nimble, pretty much everything in that book was born of my experience in the SEAL teams, the mechanics of leadership, the mechanic of talent development. Obviously, maybe not obviously to the people listening to this, you don't get to pick the people that show up. The system picks it. But the systems also spend a lot of money, especially in elite units, making sure that they've gone through lots of filters and they show up. They're self-motivated, they're intelligent, and they're driven for altruistic reasons. And that's something that doesn't happen in the commercial side, right? You might get somebody by resume who's technically smart enough, mechanically capable enough, but they don't have these other personal attributes, which is weird for somebody who's in the military when they get into a company because, hey, we got a crisis here and all you hear is cars starting up in the parking lot because it's 4.55, the day is over. And it just blows your mind. So mechanically, leadership, training, mentoring, coaching, developing both senior leaders, mid-level leaders, and the technical experts that are day-to-day, you know, where the rubber meets the road in a company, that almost completely came from my experience in the SEAL teams. Because in a small unit, you have to rely on each other. You get cross-trained and in maybe four or five different skill sets. You don't have that much time, but everybody's pounding that out all the time because you never know, as I used to say in, in my early days, when the balloon goes up, you go with what you got. So when the phone rings, it's you don't get a chance for an extra week of training. You don't get a chance to take the new guy and give him something you should have given him six months ago. You're taking the new guy with you. So you're always trying to train up and get people better. The other concept, the strategy vision thing, it's the exact opposite. I didn't see a lot of that. I saw a lot of confusion in special operations. I was there when Special Operations Command was kind of created in the first couple of years. I mean, they tried to send all the SEALs and Air Force spec ops to Ranger School as a bluing exercise. It was like a man test. You can you imagine it? So you had four-star and three-star army generals in charge of the new Special Operations Command. The first thing they do is they call the other two components wimps and say, you have to go through our man test or else you're not, you know, it was crazy. It was chaotic. And I was in the strategy and tactics group on the SEAL side. And I'm watching all these senior officers that have been through Naval Warfare College and lots of other things. And they're confused and they don't know what to do. And nobody from the Navy or anybody else is giving them a light at the edge of the horizon to aim for. There wasn't a strategic vision. So we just kind of winged it. And so between that, reading a lot about military history and the failure of strategic alignment with operational campaigns, et cetera, 
I realize that that's something that's missing in the military. It's coherent. And then I get outside and it's missing. I mean, almost every small business owner I ask, I say, do you have a strategy? Well, no. Okay, let's back up. What's your exit strategy? What do you mean? Are you ever going to sell this business? Well, I never thought about it. Well, how long have you been doing it? 11 years. I mean, it's just been grinding with no end in sight. I wonder, Marty, because I find a lot of skepticism when I sit down with a senior executive or a C-suite executive at any level of organization, any level size of corporation, I should say, I find a lot of resistance to that strategy and vision conversation. They view it as fluff or as additive, but not necessary and critical. I guess based upon your experience and the conversations you've had with folks you've interacted with, what do you see as kind of the reason behind that perspective that strategy and vision is fluff or immaterial or not substantial? I think one is education and exposure to the train crashes that organizations, companies go through because of a lack of strategic understanding. They get run over by innovation. They get run over by a competitor. Maybe it's because in the military history vernacular, they write it all down. You can go back and find out exactly how things got screwed up. You could point to the cause and the effect and all that. But in commercial business, nobody's writing down what happened to Kodak, what they said, what they didn't do. So you've got maybe a million companies over the last three, 400 years of capitalism, at least modern capitalism, that have gone through strategic blunders, strategic blindness, and suffered for it or got wiped out by it. And I'd say most of them didn't even realize that what they made a mistake in was a strategic shortfall, strategic weakness. It's like you want to focus on KPIs, you want to focus on execution. It's like you're staring at a railroad track and you're analyzing every inch of that railroad track. And all of a sudden you look up and at the last second you see this big bright light and that's the locomotive running you over. But you could have seen it if you looked up because it started way out there on the horizon, right? So that's, I try to scare people straight a little bit. I try to use some examples, as many as I can find. And then sometimes I ask them questions like, what if? So what if this happens? What's your action? They don't even have contingency plans as a reactive response to the world changing. It's funny, as I've gotten out of the military, I look back and I look at just, you know, after action reviews. And uh, we had the Center for Army Lessons Learned on the ground in Iraq while we're there. So they're capturing in real time, they're conducting ARs and post-mission briefs and capturing that information so that we can carry that forward. And then the contingency planning, my brigade commander called it the devious bastard exercise. We do mission planning and then we take a step back and we go, okay, what could go wrong? And everyone in the room, regardless of rank or experience, was expected to participate in identifying what could possibly go wrong. And I, I see that lack of diligence in civilian corporate planning all of the time. When you retired and you made that transition into the civilian life, what kind of compelled you to go into the world of business and what value did you think you could provide as you were kind of making that mental and physical transition from active duty to civilian world? I didn't think I was bringing any value. I had an undergraduate and a graduate degree in business management, so I thought I was all prepared and everything. And I went into money management with the United Bank of Switzerland, so I did that for eight years. Probably the best thing I could have possibly done. One, I didn't know how to sell. So on day one, I, I almost quit because I realized I was going to have to sell and go out and find and meet people that didn't know me, get them to trust me. I mean, it was a cold start in a lot of different ways. Nothing academic about it. It was just the same problem, selling a car or selling a shirt, trying to sell yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. it's their life savings you're trying to get them to commit with. <laughs> the other thing was going through business school is one thing, but analyzing businesses as a stock person, looking at the rise and fall, the cyclical nature of great companies and great companies that stutter step. And then a leader comes in and turns them around. And, you know, and I'd read these things because they'd be in the analyst reports about all the active companies. And like Warren Buffett, he focuses on the management team. I started realizing that, and you know this, a good leader in charge of a small group 
even with a bad plan and bad circumstances can make it happen. A bad leader with the best plan, the best circumstances is probably going to make it a, a bad circumstances because, I mean, if I can take one good leader and put him in charge of a startup or, or one good leader in charge of a unit going to do a deep reconnaissance or something, I can actually relax. I have the confidence that they are going to figure it out because they're a good leader. Same thing in business, same thing in corporate America. And oddly enough, all that information is out there in annual reports and open source about almost every company that's publicly traded. You can see what they do and you can see how they react to the competitive challenges and you can see whether they have a vision or not. You know, are they plugging away towards something that nobody else sees? Is it like an Elon Musk and everybody goes, oh, he stumbled, the stock goes down, yeah, it'll boom, it jumps back up and you find out that he's selling, you know, power stations to Ford or something. Where'd that come from? Well, because he's got an idea. He's pursuing a bright light out there and everybody else is reacting to the moment. In addition to vision and I think intelligence and probably the soft skills around human interaction, what are some of the traits you would outline as most important to you in identifying good leadership? I kind of break it down to three, I guess, trite answers. <laughs> the first thing I call it is intellectual humility. That's the ability to set aside all your past victories and your defeats to clear your mind so that you can absorb new information. And that's the second phase, which is intellectual curiosity. And it's true curiosity, not just breathing in the ideas of the group that's around you, but going out 360 degree awareness of what's out there, other industries, how they're handling. You've got a supply chain function in your industry, your business, and it has to do with, you know, your staffing company, it's people. Well, you can learn things from looking at other supply chain issues where they're moving fluid or they're moving metal. There's something to be learned everywhere, right? And then once you've done that, you've collected all this information and not rejected it because you're intellectually being humble here. The third thing is to be intellectually creative. I think you can be truly creative and come up with a solution that gets you in a better place if you've done the first two steps. If you can find a leader that is either doing all three or is doing two of the three or understands it when you say it and starts to practice that, you can convert a grinding kind of a leader into a thinking intelligent leader who suddenly has the whole world of input coming in to make better decisions. Do you see leadership as something that can be taught or is it something that's formed? I guess I make the distinction in being formed being the raw attributes are there, but they need to be shaped with experience and coaching and time as opposed to it's really just a skill set that anyone can adopt if they're taught in the right way at the right time in the right circumstance. So I make a distinction definitely in the first book being nimble. My definition of leadership and management, or maybe it's just my own way of looking at it, but management is consistently monitoring and providing resources and kind of minor reactions to missteps in support of systems, processes, and the talent, the way the talent was designed to operate, meaning their by resume. The difference between that and leadership is when the system catastrophically fails or any of those other two, whether it's the talent, leg of the stool, or the process part of the stool to execute. If it's a catastrophic failure, managers don't know what to do. They're not taught this. And this is where the emotions and the judgment and the wisdom and the humility based on experience usually to say, I don't care what we used to do. I don't care what the book says. This isn't in the book. I want everybody in a room. We're going to walk this problem through from beginning to end and we're going to solve it even if we have to recreate the entire thing. And we've only got two days to do it. That is leadership. Now, you can be a manager and a leader, but the second one is a much rarer trait. I think it's rare because nobody, except for maybe military and law enforcement and maybe emergency responders, nobody really trains to it. So it's not an expectation. And, you know, in society 200 years ago, if a woman was accosted by a man on the street, every man who saw that would feel 
culturally bound to go and protect that woman and stop what was going on, right? They were taught that as kids. They were taught, you protect innocent kids, women, whatever. The frail, the weak, you have to be protected by the strong, and this is what you do as a man. Well, that kind of stuff doesn't get taught anywhere outside the military, law enforcement, et cetera. So what you end up, unfortunately, in business is you end up with people that already have 20 or 30 years not being exposed to that. And it's really a hard thing to get them to suddenly be courageous and step into the fire and be all poised and everything. That's hard. So if they got it from some other place through life experience or through other military, whatever, those people will step up and you'll see that surprise me sometimes. And I'll find out, well, you know, my dad died. He had the business I had to take over. My mom was sick. Me and my little brother actually ran the restaurant for five years when I was like 11 years old. Like, really? That's where he got the resilience. No, that's a great point. In fact, I mean, just you referencing that example of kind of stepping in and protecting, there's been a lot written lately and New York Times shot a big op-ed on the challenges of masculinity and the place of men and culture and where we get initiation and how do we even define it? So that's interesting that you tie that in with the leadership component. Nowadays, I've got three daughters and two boys, they're all grown up. I would expect that we'd have evolved from 100 years ago, whatever, and women would be taught the same thing. I'd be really upset if my daughters walked by and saw something like that and didn't do something about it. So kind of flipping it then, if you know, when you left the military, you didn't see what value you brought to the business world. Now that you've had years of experience and have written and you've become a thought leader and you're advising consulting and you've directly led companies. If you were looking back, talking to the younger version of Marty, what would you tell him that you actually bring? And what would, might you tell other veterans, maybe even combat veterans, because we have a lot of those floating around right now as to what value they can bring, not only to the business world, but to the community in general? Well, two things, and I don't think I appreciated them, so I do appreciate them now. One was how I was really good at planning and I was really good at making people feel comfortable and confident in the plan. And when you're managing people's money and you're investing people's hard-earned savings or whether they just sold a business, whatever, they can feel whether or not you are comfortable, confident, and trustworthy. And that kind of poise and everything we all got in the military to one extent or the other. And six months before I left the military, I wish future Marty would go back and say, don't worry about the selling thing so much. Don't worry about the things you don't know how to do so much. Because what you do know how to do is you know how to convey, explain, teach and lead people that are afraid about money and finance, but they still want to try to figure out a way to protect savings. So that ended up being my shtick. I did seminars and then I became kind of a planner. And I was basically within two years doing a lot of the same kind of things I was doing as an officer in the teams in that I was leading and kind of standing tall in a stiff wind and making sure that you know nobody quit and everybody stayed the course. And then in business, that same kind of thing carries on. Being a thought leader Everybody thinks of it first as an academic exercise, right? But being courageous in the midst of crisis or in chaos is also being a thought leader. What you're basically doing is you're taking your calm thoughts and awareness and understanding that panic is not going to be helpful and that you can galvanize people's energy and calm them and get them focused on doing something positive and constructive, but you're doing it with thoughts that have been forged and created over time because of a prior experience. And it's great, you know, I write articles, books and everything, and I put lots of my thoughts in those things. I also think there's a lot of responsibility on the academic side of thought leadership because you have to put it out there and you have to explain what your thoughts are, and then you have to make it clear that you're a practitioner and you're not just a Sunday morning writer that just tossing stuff out there to look like an influencer. And I write about this in my third book. Being an influencer and looking like an influencer are two totally different things. And usually a real influencer is doing something kinetic. They're moving something on the earth. Something's getting better because of their thoughts 
something better because of their influence, like a Gandhi. Gandhi was a thought leader, but he wasn't just a thought leader. The guy lived those thoughts and performed the way he thought, and he galvanized and drove people to believe in him and obviously believe in a free India. So that's what you really want to be. You want to be an influencer that's actually influencing in the physical world, not just tossing out ideas. I find, and particularly on my side of the work, because Lindsay and I worked at the same firm together for a while doing organizational change and organizational design, organizational strategy work. We often find within our sphere of practice, a lot of theoreticians who can talk about it, but not a lot of people that can actually do it. And you're right. The system is kind of wired right now to hear people's thoughts and not really validate their actions or see validation of their thought leadership through action. So a lot of talk, not a lot of action. Yeah. Marty, really have enjoyed the interview. I'll pass it over to Lindsay for some final questions and thoughts. Well, Marty, one question I wanted to ask you is about the title of your book be nimble and be visionary. And you had mentioned you're working on another one. Those titles, are they written to align like that on purpose? Is this a series of books? What can you tell us about how they're related and new books that are coming out? Sure. So Be Nimble was, as I described before, it was about leadership. I didn't think at first I was going to write a second book. I was convinced by one of my beta readers, somebody who reads chapter by chapter and gives me feedback. He was actually a CEO to write a book about vision and strategy. And it made sense to me. His insight made a lot of sense. So I went ahead and I wrote the second book and my publisher thought, well, you know, putting that B, it's a call to action, right? So to be nimble, to be visionary. And so I'm going through be visionary, but as I'm finishing up be visionary, and most people may or may not know this, but you may write the book in eight or nine months, but then by the time it gets through editing and then goes to pre-sale for six months, it's like 18 months, 16 months before he hits the street. So I actually have to listen to my own book sometimes before I go on podcast because it's been so long since I wrote the thing. And somebody will hold up the book in front of me and goes, hey, on chapter three. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so I got involved in a nonprofit called Best Robotics on their board, helping them with strategy. They've been around for 30 years. It was all about creativity and it was all about innovation and reigniting innovation. It focuses on kids, but they wanted me eventually to start seeing if there's something we could do with adults. And so we ended up starting a company called Best Mind Lab, which is a for-profit. And the whole point of that was taking the secret sauce we were seeing with the kids, which were basically, they didn't know any rules. They weren't obeying any rules because nobody was teaching them any rules. And they were putting together these robotic or technology mechanisms to go in and compete. And these aren't like robots that attack each other. They have to do tasks. The engineers who started the program said, this is kind of crazy because they've never been through engineering school. They're just high school kids. They don't know anything about this stuff yet. They're solving the problems. Then they rapid prototype corrective actions in the competition. They're sitting there with Dremel tools and stuff. And it's an amazing thing, right? And so I started getting really deep into creativity, innovation, brain science. That's what led me to write the third book, Be Different, How Navy Seals and Entrepreneurs Bend, Break, or Ignore the Rules to Get Results, which I just sent the editor four days ago. So it is a series. It is a call to action. I had a lot of fun writing the third book because I was kind of immersed in it for the last almost two years now. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. So Marty, as Justin said earlier, thank you so much for joining us today. The final question is, can you just let our listeners know where they can purchase your books, learn more about you as a motivational speaker? Sure. So all my books are on Amazon under Marty Strong. They can go there. The nine novels are also on Amazon. But if you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, you'll find my articles, you'll find everything about my speaking and all the programs that I put together for speaking. And there's links to all the books both the business books and the novels. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really a pleasure. 
That's all for today's episode. To order your copy of the book, Refining Grow, Lessons Learned on Navigating the Business World and Access Additional Resources, head out to our website at refiningrow.com. And tune in next week for an all new episode. Thanks for listening.